This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. And now, episode 8, Genesis chapters 24 through 27. Concerned that his son Yitzchak will marry the wrong kind of woman, chapter 24 begins with Avraham charging his servant to go to the land of his kin up in Aram of the two rivers and to find his boy a good wife. Except there's a catch. Arameans are matrilocal. That is, when a man marries a woman, he is supposed to become part of his wife's family homestead. Uh, Avraham, besides being patrilocal, has it on good word that Canaan belongs to him, so he needs his son and grandson and great-grandson and great-great-grandson and great-great-great-grandson in Canaan, in his father's household, to stake the claim. So Avraham's servant heads out on what seems to be a mission doomed to failure. But he says to himself, if I meet the right woman, a woman who offers me and my animals some water, then it's a sign from God. And it was, the Tanakh recounts. Not yet had he finished speaking when here Rivka came out. She had been born to Betuel, son of Milka, wife of Nahor, brother of Avraham, her pitcher on her shoulder. When Rivka gives water to the servant and to his camels, Avraham's servant is so moved that he lavishes gold and jewelry upon her. Later, when Rivka's brother Lavan hears about the servant and sees the wealth, he is solicitous and hospitable. They discuss business, that is, the marriage, and before the deal is struck, they turn to Rivka and ask her what she thinks. Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And so the servant and his new mistress saddle up and head back to Knaan, where they come across Yitzchak. Here is yet another one of those intimate moments in a very personal story. Rivka says, who is the man over there that is walking in the field to meet us? The servant replies, that is my lord, at which point Rivka takes a veil and covers herself. The concluding verse in chapter 24 recounts how Yitzchak took Rivka and, quote, she became his wife and he loved her. Thus was Yitzchak comforted after his mother. Chapter 25 begins with a list of begats and ages and concludes with another intimate exchange, this time between Rivka and God. Rivka, it seems, was barren like her mother-in-law. There must be something in the water in Canaan. After Yitzchak entreated Adonai on behalf of his wife, Rivka becomes pregnant with twins, but the children almost crushed one another inside her, the text tells us. So Rivka goes off to, quote, inquire of Adonai. This reminds me of that joke when a woman and her son are at the beach having a lovely swim and the little boy is wearing his little, you know, swimming costume with a hat and shorts and a shirt and a giant wave comes on, sweeps the kid out to sea. The woman crumples into the sand, calling out to God, Oh God, my God, please return my son to me. Suddenly another giant wave crashes on the shore, depositing her son at her feet, at which point the woman looks up to the heavens and shouts, He had a hat! Soon enough, the twins are born, both destined to father two nations, with the elder serving the younger. The first one is ruddy and hairy, and was thus named Esav, rough one. The second, grasping Esav's heel, was called Yaakov, heel holder. Within seven verses, the favoritism and rivalry is clearly spelled out, and after Esav returns from the hunt, famished and tired, the rivalry is compounded by what my lawyerly spouse calls, quote, an unconscionable contract, whereby an agreement is struck that is grossly unjust, unfair, or dishonest, and usually raises questions of competency, fairness, and honesty. Chapter 25 concludes, uh, Yaakov gives Esav some bread and boiled lentils. Esav eats it, drinks, and rises and leaves. And thus Esav, quote, despised the firstborn right. 
And before you can say famine in the land, we find ourselves back in Gerar in chapter 26 with Avimelech, and this time it's Yitzchak urging his wife to say she is his sister. What is the deal with patriarchs and their sisters? But, but the ruse is quickly exposed as Avimelech sees Yitzchak laughing and loving with Rivka, his wife. Oops. After a brief sojourn in Grar, enrichment and eventual eviction, Yitzchak digs some wells, as did his father, gets into disputes with the locals over these wells, as did his father, and swears oaths of friendship, as did his father. But this is mere diversion from the inevitable domestic confrontation, as Yitzchak, now older and blinder in chapter 27, prepares to bestow the birthright to his eldest. Rivka overhears Yitzchak's intention to prefer his final blessing on Esav and schemes with Yaakov to impersonate Esav so that Yitzchak, quote, may give you the blessing before his death. When the deed is done and Yaakov absconds with Yitzchak's blessing, Esav returns from the hunt and enters his father's tent, delicacy in hand and ready for his blessing. When Yitzchak discovers the deception, he, quote, trembled with very great trembling and told Esav, who, quote, cried out with a very great and bitter cry, and through his hot tears and rage, plaintively asks, quote, haven't you reserved a blessing for me? When Yitzchak confirms that indeed Yaakov has received all the blessings, Esav wails, have you only a single blessing, father? Bless me also, father. Yitzchak eventually relents and blesses Esav, but, quote, now Esav held a grudge against Yaakov because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. He also pledges to avenge himself on his brother as soon as Yitzchak dies. And so, Rivka packs Yaakov off to Haran, to her brother Lavan's house, until Esav's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you did to him. What she tells Yitzchak is a different story. Yaakov must go to Haran so he does not end up marrying a local woman like Esav. And from the first verses of chapter 28, which we'll explore more thoughtfully next episode, it seems that Yitzchak goes along with this wives' tale. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's selection. Let's get to it. This week, once again, we find ourselves neck deep in family troubles. And though it seems, with only eight episodes in, to have become a cliche, I, I want to revisit this fourth iteration of sibling rivalry, one that I have always regarded as the most poignant and the most tragic. I'm sure you're wondering, fourth? Most poignant? Most tragic? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Well, let's dig out that old sibling rivalry scorecard. Okay, so, Kain versus Hevel is the first. Resolution, the former, murders the latter. Next, number two, Cham versus Shem and Yefet. Resolution, the former is enslaved to the latter. Number three, Ishmael versus Yitzchak. Uh, the resolution, the former is nearly murdered upon orders of their father. Then again, the same is true for the latter. Oh gosh, what a dad. And last but not least, Yaakov versus Esav. That's number four. Resolution to be announced. You know, I'm always struck by how personal this section of the Tanakh is. The Tanakh being the book of books for the Jewish people. And yet, here we are, once again, yet again, steeped in Avraham's anxieties in chapter 24. And what's Avraham worried about? His heirs. You know, one would think that having a son 
and then another son, and almost killing the former before almost murdering the latter, one would somehow, you know, feel less concerned about continuity or, or perhaps more concerned. But Abraham, nonetheless, is worried that his son will marry badly, choosing a woman from among the accursed local Canaanite women. And, and if you recall Noah's curse of Ham through Canaan, Abraham's worry makes perfect sense. We also get even more intimate glimpses into, in this week's portion, in one instance into the sex lives of the patriarchs, which in a different time would be a great concept for reality TV. Avimelech sees Yitzchak mitzachek et ishto, which Everett Fox renders as but we also get rather intimate with, of all people, Esav during his defraudment. Yes, that's a word. And I think that this iteration of sibling rivalry is the most poignant and the most tragic because of who gets involved in the rivalry, who gets duped, and who does the duping. It's a real mess. I know the text positions us to root for Yaakov, Rivka's favorite, but I feel bad for Esav. Even in my family of two brothers, with me being the, the younger one, I feel bad for the elder, Harrier Esav, even though he is Yitzchak's favorite. And my feeling bad for Esav begins back in chapter 25 with the boiled stew and what my darling loyally spouse refers to as an unconscionable contract. Working. Unconscionable contract. A contract which no man in his senses, not under delusion, would make, on the one hand and which no fair and honest man would accept, on the other. That comes from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, the 1856 edition. So on the one hand, we have Yaakov, the third father, role model, and paragon, acting in a manner that is grossly unjust, unfair, and arguably dishonest, and according to Bouvier, utterly lacking in sense and functioning under seeming delusion. And then there's Esav, who, in agreeing to the terms and swearing of an oath, one might easily question his competence to make any kind of serious decision whatsoever. And, according to Bouvier, we might question Esav's sense of fairness and honesty if he would consider this a good deal. Bouvier's formulation is actually rather counterintuitive. I would think that it was the unfair and dishonest man who makes the offer and the insensible, deluded man who accepts. Bouvier has it in reverse. The individual making such a preposterous offer must be insensible, and deluded for making it, and the man who accepts must have no sense of fairness or honesty at all if we would mistake such an outrageous offer as ingenuous. Which makes me feel even worse for Esav, who is deemed suspect because he trusts that his twin brother would not rob or cheat him, and whose sense of fairness and honesty is called into question for not seeing Yaakov's offer for what it really was. Then again, what should we expect from a man named Heel Holder or Heel Sneak? Actually, not much. In a Freakonomics podcast about baby names, Stephen, that's S-T-E-V-E-N Levitt, and Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N Dubner, ponder how much your name really matters. After interviewing individuals with all kinds of interesting names like E or Yo or Latanya with interesting spellings and, and poking around all kinds of studies about names and outcomes, Dubner concludes as follows. One thing that most of us probably can agree on, just about every parent thinks that his or her kid is special, on some level, and part of what makes each of our kids special is the names we give them, but from what we can tell, your name is not your destiny even if your name, is Destiny, or Esme, or Archimedes, or Kurt, it is true that your name may tell the world something, maybe even something fairly significant about your parents' religious or ethnic background, their level of income or education, 
maybe even their politics. But just think about it for a minute. Think about all the things that make you. You, your intelligence, your taste, your health, your work ethic and morals and decision making. To say nothing of luck. Now, considering all of those heavyweight forces, how much could something as superficial as a name really affect your life's outcome? Plus which, if you really think your name is holding you back, it isn't that hard to change it. I'll post a link to that whole episode so you can hear the whole story about Latanya. Anyway, but let's get back to Yaakov and Esav in that moment at the end of chapter 25. What would possess Yaakov to even make such a preposterous pitch over a pot of stew? Was he sitting there, stirring the pot literally and figuratively, wondering to himself, Now how will I get my hands on Esav's birthright? Perhaps I will follow my ancestor Kalayin's example and kill Esav? Nah, that won't work. Esav is far stronger than me and what kind of cover story could I tell you it's art that he wouldn't see right through? No pun intended. Perhaps, like Ham, Esav might disgrace himself and lose the birthright. Doubtful. Yitzhak favors Esav and nothing Esav could do would get him disowned, even screwing it around with local women. And even if Yitzhak banished Esav into the desert with barely any food and water, Esav would probably survive out there anyway. Got it. Maybe Esav will be hungry and want some of this stew and that's when I will spring my trap. I will ask for the birthright in exchange. And, as someone whose competence is questionable, and whose sense of honesty and fairness is clearly furcacked, Esav will undoubtedly accept. I can't help but think that Yaakov's request of sell me your firstborn right here and now is anything but premeditated. Feel free to leave disparaging comments about this point on the Facebook page or in the comments section at The Next Jew. And then I think about Esau's response. Here I am on my way to dying, so what good to me is a firstborn right? And then I think, duress? Was his agreement to the terms the act of a desperate man, similar to someone dangling from their ankles from a 10th floor balcony, agreeing to repay a loan at 135% interest? Someday. And that day may never come. I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Or I think about the age-old practice of price gouging, which also brings up the question of unconscionability again. In cases of price unconscionability, one of the parties argues that the price paid was grossly disproportionate to the value of the good or service received in exchange. So, in the case of Yaakov and Esav, one could easily imagine Esav arguing that the birthright's value was in no way proportionate to the value of a bowl of stew. In such a case, the court would determine the values of both items and whether the agreement was oppressive, resulted from unequal bargaining power, or one-sidedness. If this is determined, the court can set aside the bargain which begs two rather profound questions about the relationship between the court and markets. Where is the line between conscionable and unconscionable? The statutes don't say. And what about freedom of contract? What about free markets? In other words, if Esav wants to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew, it's his right. And who are we to say that he is being ripped off anyway? 
This being said, whatever happened between Yaakov and Esav in chapter 25 is further compounded in chapter 27, when Rivka actively schemes with Yaakov to deceive Yitzchak and steal the blessing. Esav is duped every which way by seemingly everybody. The second he leaves to fulfill what he believes is one of his father's last wishes, his mother springs into action. Again, it seems from the well-concocted scheme that she had been waiting for this opportunity for quite some time. Now how will Yaakov get his hands on Esav's blessing? Perhaps he will follow her ancestor Karain's example and kill Esav. Now, Esav is far stronger than Yaakov in what kind of cover story could we tell Yitzhak that he wouldn't see right through? No pun intended. Perhaps, like Ham, Esav might disgrace himself and lose the birthright? Doubtful. Yitzhak favors Esav and nothing Esav could do would get him disowned even screwing around with local women. And even if Yitzhak banished Esav into the deserts with barely any food and water, Esav would probably survive out there anyway. Got it? Maybe while Esav is out hunting, Yaakov could impersonate Esav and steal the blessing, and, as someone whose competence is questionable, and whose sense of honesty and fairness is clearly furcacked, Esav will undoubtedly not figure any of this out until it is too late. And while read, and I'm also not convinced that Yitzchak is completely taken in by Yaakov's disguise. At pivotal moments, Yitzchak is unsure who he's talking to. He asks on three occasions, which one are you, my son? Pray, come closer that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son, Esav, or not. Are you he, my son, Esav? He also comments about Yaakov's voice not fitting in with the rough, hairy arms. Only the smell of the fields gives Yitzchak permission to relax into the blessing, which he then does and does with great floridness. Yeah, that's probably not a word. Anyway, and Yaakov, as soon as he gets the blessing, he beats it out of there and he's off. And moments later, Esav arrives in classic bedroom farce style. How can one not feel bad for Esav as he walks in, brimming with excitement about the favorite delicacy he's prepared for his father, only to discover that he's been ripped off? Let my father arise and eat from the hunted game of his son, that you may give me your own blessing, Esav says. Yitzchak replies, which one are you? What kind of question is that? Which one am I? Has another been here that you ask which one am I? Esav replies, I am your son, your firstborn Esav. But the jig is up. Yitzchak trembles with the realization that he has blessed the wrong son, intentionally or not. And for some reason, once a blessing is blessed, it can't be unblessed. We, we saw this with Noah and Ham, where Ham shamed his father. But since God blessed Ham already, Noah saved up all of his curses for Ham's son, Knaan. You dick! Esav bursts into tears. He has been cut to the quick. His father, the parent who favors him, can't come through for him. Not only that... Yitzchak spells out the defraudment. Your brother came with deceit and took away your blessing. <laughs> but what Esav says next is very curious. Quote, Is that why his name was called Yaakov Heelsneak? For he has now sneaked against me twice. My firstborn right he took, and now he has taken my blessing. Twice? How twice? What twice? Was he aware that he was being unconscionably contracted? If so, why did he agree to it? Can someone be sneaked against if one knows one is being sneaked against? 
Again, I consulted with my darling lawyerly spouse about this, and after a very interesting conversation about the nature of fraud, justice, restitution, and statutes of limitations, I took away the following gem. You cannot be defrauded if you are aware of the fraud. But here's the thing. Even after all the defraudments, recriminations, and threats of murder, which though Esav said in his heart, Rivka somehow heard, a relative calm quickly returns to the household. Rivka once again has everything worked out. Yaakov will seek refuge in her brother Lavan's house in Haran. And to facilitate this, she has an intimate domestic moment with Yitzchak, where she tells him that she will just plots if Yaakov ends up with a Hittite girl. In so doing, she primes Yitzchak, so Yitzchak himself, in the beginning of chapter 28, will encourage Yaakov to take some time in Haran, as if a trip to Haran was his idea and had nothing to do with Esau's plans for vengeance. What a spot to end this week's episode, eh? Be sure to join us next time for even more exciting family dramas and defraudments when we'll explore Genesis 28 to 31. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quement at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, that's T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or quement at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for Episode 9 on Genesis Chapters 28 through 31. Y'all come back now, here.